You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. When Jesus Christ rose victoriously from the grave and overcame death, that one event in all of history was the ultimate game changer. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, when that tomb gave way to resurrection life, it was the single greatest event to ever happen in the history of mankind. As a matter of fact, if I were someone who was not a Christian, and I were to ask someone, if I were not a believer, where, where would I begin to, to start to learn about uh, the claims of Christianity? I would, if someone were to ask me that, I would tell them that you start uh, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're an unbeliever this morning and, and seeking to know more about the truth of Christianity, you begin with the, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because all the other tenets and doctrines of the Christian faith rise or fall on that one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ from the dead. I read something interesting the other day, and that is that the U.S. Air Force trains its teams to memorize two numbers so that they can survive during a time of crisis. The first number is 98.6. Now, many of you know that 98.6, that is the optimum core temperature of our body. So if your body temperature gets below uh, 88, you, you aren't able to kind of think clearly. Once your body core temperature drops below 82, you're toast, okay? So they teach them, first of all, whatever else you do, in the moment of a crisis, you must stay warm. The second number is three. Now that's a little more complicated and it is called the rule of three. And here's what they say. You can survive three weeks without food, three days without water, three hours without shelter in extreme conditions, three minutes without air, and three seconds without hope. Now, the message of Easter, the empty grave, tells us that we are never without hope. Not for three seconds, not for one second, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the empty tomb of Jesus that gives us hope. Hope in the here and now, and hope in the here after. And don't get the idea that this hope I'm talking about is uh, like a, you know, uh, 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 one day uh, kind of hope. It's not uh, a, a hope so kind of hope. What I'm talking about is the no so 
kind of hope. I'm talking about the hope of forgiveness, the hope of eternal life, the hope of peace, the hope of relationship, a right relationship with our heavenly father, the hope of a right relationship uh, with other brothers and sisters, the hope of heaven, the hope that is found in the one and only person of Jesus Christ. It is the kind of hope that David expressed in Psalm 39, seven, when he says, my hope is in you. Psalm 71 verse five says, O Lord, you alone are my hope. I've trusted in you, O Lord, from childhood. Now, if David, King David in the Old Testament can have that kind of hope without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, imagine the hope that can be ours this side of the empty tomb. This morning as we celebrate Easter, I want to look at a passage from the New Testament book of Acts. It's a story where the Apostle Paul takes a chance to infuse, to bring hope into a very lost city through the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this particular story uh, takes place in a part of the world uh, in Athens, Greece, in many ways, at that time, it was one of the most glorious cities in all the world in terms of architecture and history. The scenery in, in Athens, both then and now, is just absolutely breathtaking. One spot in particular is the Acropolis, on which the Parthenon sat overlooking the entire city of Athens. Now, the Parthenon was a temple that was dedicated to Athena, who was the Greek god of wisdom. It was built 400 years before Jesus Christ, and it's probably the most perfect building that was ever built in the world. It is by many described as an architectural wonder. Now, what's even more amazing about that is just 50 yards from the Parthenon is a huge rock. And this huge rock is about 30 to 40 feet high. And you can actually climb up on top of this. And it just gives you this unbelievable view of the city of Athens. And it was called the uh, Areopagus, which literally means in Greek, the, the hill of uh, Ares. And Ares was the Greek god of war, and his equivalent was the Roman god called Mars. And so it came to be also known as Mars Hill. And it was from that very rock that the Apostle Paul preached perhaps his greatest sermon to the hardest audience in the toughest setting ever. Paul was not in Athens as a sightseer. He was there as an evangelist. And he very much wanted to bring the light and the hope of Easter into the darkness of that lost city um, that uh, he was there uh, to do that very thing. And we're gonna see uh, that as Paul brought that message of hope uh, and, and light into a very lost city, it also gives us some insight how to do the same, to take the hope, the light of the message of the resurrection and to be able to begin to infuse that into our lost city. 
And as we think about Easter and we think about the Easter message to a lost world, I want to just look at three things that we can learn uh, from what Paul did there. And the first is because of Easter, our passion should be stirred. In Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says, now, while Paul waited uh, for them, he's waiting for um, the two disciples, uh, Silas uh, and uh, Timothy, he's waiting for them uh, there in Athens. It says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the entire city was given over to idols. So as Paul's walking around this very ancient city, he sees the spiritual poverty and the lost, hurting, broken people everywhere. And it says it just provoked him. It stirred this very deep emotion in Paul. And Paul is stirred, he is provoked in such a way that he longs to see all of these lost people kind of being reconnected to a resurrected Savior. Now, every public building there in Athens at that time was dedicated to some god, to some pagan god. In fact, one ancient citizen in Athens once said this. He said, it's easier to meet a God in Athens than to meet a man. And the reason he said that was because the population of Athens during this time was about 10,000 people. And historians say that there were at least 30,000 statues of some God. Now, just imagine, I mean, Mason City, we're probably, what, about 27,000 people? So we're much larger than the city of Athens. Now, ask yourself, what would this city look like with 30,000 statues? We have statues around the city, but not 30,000. So imagine in a a city like Mason City, if we were to have 30,000 statues and each one of those 30,000 statues is dedicated uh, to a pagan god. That's what Paul was looking at there in the city of Athens. And it's much like the world that we live in today where, where people are drinking from wells that will never ever satisfy their thirst. There are people all around us that are, are eating uh, idle bread, somehow thinking that that's going to satisfy their hunger. And there were temples uh, that were filled uh, with, with statues, but people's hearts were empty. And again, remember the setting. Athens is, is no ordinary city. First of all, it was a very strategic, it was a very important city. It was one of those cities that had everything, ancient temples, glorious artwork, magnificent buildings, sublime uh, sculptures, brilliant philosophers, outstanding orators, and spectacular scenery. And it was the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. It was here that Pythagoras uh, established the principles of modern-day mathematics. And it was here that uh, geometrical principles were formed as well as the science of astronomy. It was here that Socrates uh, taught his student Plato, and Plato in turn uh, taught his student Aristotle. And together, they all developed the basis for philosophy and logic. 
So again, it's a very important, it's a very key, it's a very strategic city. And Athens was also known as kind of the cradle or the birthplace of democracy. And much of our modern day government is fashioned after the type of government that Athens had. But for all it had, Athens was also a very ignorant city. It was a very blind city. It was a very spiritually dull city. In verses 22 through 23, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the, uh, the Aparagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He said, for I was passing through and considering the objects, the statues of your worship. And he said, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And he says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So again, this was a city that was intellectually brilliant educationally advanced, no question about it, philosophically astute, but spiritually dead. They knew many things, but they didn't know the most important thing. They knew about creation, but they did not know the creator. In fact, in the city of Athens, it tried to be one of the most inclusive cities of its time. Like I said, there were over 30,000 statues in the city, and each one of those was dedicated to a different god. And they were so concerned and so consumed with making sure every god was included and represented. They didn't want to leave out any pagan god. They didn't want to leave anyone unmentioned. So to make sure everybody was included, they incorporated one altar. And they dedicated it to the unknown god just in case they missed one. It was a way to kind of acknowledge any God they may have overlooked. They wanted to make sure they offended no one, that they left no one out, especially a God. It is interesting, the word unknown, when he talks about the unknown God, in the Greek, that word is agnostis, which is where we get the word agnostic. Now, the fact that they worshiped an unknown God, it stirred Paul's heart. And, and Paul saw that as an, an advantage. He saw that as an opportunity to take that unknown God and to proclaim the one true God. The God who revealed himself through his written word to proclaim the God that revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ as Jesus took on flesh. Because that's the God Paul knew and served. The reason that God is the only God that can be known is because he is the only God that truly exists. But the city of Athens was so spiritually blinded, they didn't realize that. We live in a city where there's a lot of spiritual blindness and people don't know what they don't know. Now in verse 23, Paul refers to the one whom you worship without knowing. 
but in the Greek language, it, it would be more accurately translated to say what you worship, not who. Paul really was referring to what they worshiped, not who they worshiped. Because there's only one God who is a who. And every other God, all 30,000 of those statues represented a what. So it provokes this question. Do you worship a who or a what? Again, it's tempting in what many people think of as a more advanced culture that, that somehow we are above and we're beyond idol worship or idolatry or that it's something, a thing of the past. We worship many of the same gods they worship. We just call them by different names. Some people worship the God of fame. Some worship the God of fortune. Some worship the God of fitness. Some worship the God of pleasure. A lot of people worship the God of food. Same God, just different names. And again, Paul's response to all of this was that his spirit was provoked within him. Now again, that, that word provoke, it is, it's a medical term that was used to describe a seizure or someone who was having um, an epileptic fit. In other words, Paul's heart just goes ballistic. And again, he was very angry at Satan who had blinded and confused the hearts of these people. You say, why was he so upset? Because Paul knew there's only one God and that that one God could be known. And they didn't know him. There's only one way to God and they didn't know that way. There's only one truth and they had bought into so many lies. May I say to you that we too should have provoked hearts and spirits because of Easter. Because Jesus, the light of the world, is alive and there is a world around us right here in Mason City, people who are living in spiritual darkness. And we need to ask God to give us a passion, provoke in us, provoke in us that same passion Paul had to share the power of the resurrected Lord with a world that is lost and without Christ. Second, because of Easter, our message should be simple. I want you to notice who Paul was talking to. It says in verses 17 to 18, it says, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, there were two groups that are specifically mentioned there. One is the Epicureans, and this was the first group in history that said, grab all the gusto in life you can. Their motto was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will all die. They were kind of the first playboys. They believed happiness and pleasure was the primary focus and goal of life. Those were the Epicureans. 
Then there were the Stoics, and these were the first people who said mind over matter. They placed more importance on their thoughts over their feelings, and they believed this life was not to be enjoyed, it was merely to be endured through hardships. So you had the first group, the Epicureans, they kind of said, laugh and enjoy the pleasures of life. The other group said, weep and endure the pain of life. And once again, that tells me that we're still living in the same age with basically the same type of mentality that Paul encountered there in Athens. And here Paul is, he's surrounded by the equivalent of PhDs, nuclear physicists, brain surgeons, college professors, brilliant attorneys. Paul is engaged with some of the most educated people in the world at that time. Is he intimidated? Not at all. Does he try to match wits with them, go toe-to-toe, one-on-one? Does he try to come up with some complex, verbose, philosophical argument? No, not at all. He goes right to the basics. He kind of starts with Christianity 101. He starts with the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Paul begins by telling them about the God they can know. Look at verses 24 through 25. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. That's pretty simple, right? We know that. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. You know that, don't you? We all know that, right? And human hands can't serve his needs, for God has no needs. We know that, right? We, We believe that. We know this. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. If If you know this, You can preach this. This will preach. Paul's proven it to us. He's gone to some of the most educated people with the simplest of basics of messages. We can do this. So he starts off by telling them, God is a creating God. He's created everything And he's kind of just starting with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word for world there in verse 24, it's the Greek word cosmos is where we get our English word cosmos. God is the creator of the cosmos. And Paul is telling these very educated men that this world is not a cosmic accident. I can imagine Paul just kind of sweeping his hands upon uh, just across the the vast, specular, impressive world and pointing out all of the temples. And Paul using that and saying to them, you realize God doesn't dwell in any of these temples you've constructed, but yet God has made a home for you. As a matter of fact, his son Jesus has gone to prepare that place for you. And again, Paul's greater point is that God is not a creation in our image. Rather, we are created in his image and his likeness. That God doesn't want the creation of temple. He wants the worship of the hearts of men. 
And then Paul goes on to point out that God is also the purposeful God. In verses 26 through 28, he said his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he just says to them, God's purpose for you, it's very simple. His purpose for you is to find him. You and I have no greater purpose in life than that. And the good news is, is that God has made it very easy for us to do that because Paul says he's not far from any of you. You may feel far from him, but the truth is he is not far from you. Sometimes it can feel like God is a million miles away. But the scriptures tell us over and over and over, God is always near us, whether we feel him or not. As a matter of fact, Paul said, God is so close that you derive your life, your being, your existence through him. I remember when I was in college, I attended a local church and there was this poster uh, in the entryway. So I would see it every time I would walk in to the church and the sign had three questions on it. It said, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And I'd see that, I think, man, those are, those are great questions. Then it went on to say, science tries to answer the first question philosophy tries to answer the second question nobody even tries to answer the third question but Christianity answers all three questions and Paul said there in verse 28 for in him we live and we move and we exist think about that in the history of philosophy and science there have been three mysteries that have baffled the greatest minds life motion and existence no one has yet ever unraveled the mystery of life. Oh, they're trying. They're attempting to, but they never will. Scientists still don't totally understand motion, and the idea of existence occupies both the philosopher and the science. Yet, in one statement, Paul lets us know that in God, we live, move, and exist. In him we live. That is the power supply for life from Almighty God. In him we move. Motion finds its impetus in God. Without him, everything would be stagnant, immobile, and lifeless. In him we exist. It is because of his eternal being that we can exist at all. And that's why Paul was able to say in verse 27, he is not far from any of us, and he's not the problem is because of sin, we are far from him. But he is not far from us. As a matter of fact, the scripture says he, he longs to draw us near to him, to draw us close to him. It is God's desire that every one of us come to the knowledge of salvation, which is exactly where Jesus comes in. Thirdly, because of Easter, our purpose should be steadfast. I want to take you back to that phrase in verse 18. Paul preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Nothing fancy. 
Nothing complicated, nothing mysterious, just a message that even a little child could understand. Jesus and his resurrection, which is this morning's all about. And that raises a question, why in such a city filled with brilliant, educated intellectuals, philosophers, and scholars, why would Paul immediately go to Jesus and the resurrection? Well, I'll tell you why I believe he did. Because this is what all of life boils down to. Life really comes down to this. Is the message of Easter true or false? Do you really believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Again, nobody disputes the historical fact. History books are full that there was a man who lived over 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody disputes the fact that if Jesus lived at one time, that he would have died at some point just like everybody else who has ever lived will. What is disputed, what is argued, is this. Did Jesus die, be placed in a tomb, and then three days later be resurrected with the kind of life in which death is no longer possible? Did that happen? Did Jesus die and three days later completely overcome death and establish and prove that he is indeed the son of God? Again, if Jesus isn't alive, nothing else really matters. Turn off the lights, lock the door on your way out. But if it's true, if Jesus is alive, if he did die, went into that grave, and three days later rose again from the dead and has eternal life, then to me everything matters. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then all of our preaching is useless. In other words, if, if Christ really has not been raised from the dead, you're wasting your time here this morning, and I'm wasting my breath. That's what he's saying. Preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still dead in your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. You realize there's a lot riding on this truth claim, this claim of Jesus' resurrection. This claim of Jesus' resurrection from the dead has far and critical implications. And to all of those people that gathered to hear Paul preach, he presented to them the same choice he presents to us. And here he said, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. He's talking Old Testament. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins and turn to him. Why? For he has set a day for judging the world with justice. That day is coming. Today we are, we are one day closer than we were yesterday. Tomorrow we'll be one day closer than where we were today. 
Should he tarry? For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this was by raising him from the dead. Who's Paul talking about there? Jesus. Here's the choice. Here's the choice Paul gave to them. Here's the choice Paul gives to you and me. Repent or face judgment. Eternal life or eternal death. It's that simple. It's that black and white. 1 John 5, verse 11 through 13 says, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is where? In his son, Jesus. So he says, all right, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Doesn't get any simpler than that. That's black and white. If you have the son, you have life. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. And John goes on to say, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Every one of us in this room right now, I don't care if it's your first time here this morning, I'm telling you every one of us in this room right now in this very moment knows whether we have life, eternal life or not. Look at that last sentence again. The disciple John wrote this to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why did he write that? So that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, right now, whether you know or you don't know. That's it. Either you know or you don't know. There's no in-between. There's no other option. It's A, I know. B, I don't know. There's no C. It's either A or B. You know or you don't know. Paul says the way you can know is by believing in the name of the Son of God, Jesus. So how do you do that? I mean, how, how do we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus? Well, Paul tells us that in Romans 10, beginning in verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe, there again, there's the believing part. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which this is what Easter is all about. This is what today is all about. We're, we're, we're believing, we're trusting, we're hoping that Jesus rose from the dead. So he says, if you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It says, for it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. I want you to see two things are happening here in Romans 10. The first thing that happens is we are made right with God. Now, what that means is, is that means you become in right standing with God the Father. You are in right relationship with God the Father when you believe in your heart the Easter message. When you believe God raised his son three days after he died on the cross... 
that's, that's what we're called to believe. And he says, for it's by believing that in your hearts that we're made right with God. Again, either you're right with God or you're not right with God. And every one of you knows right now in your heart of hearts where you stand on that issue. For those of you that don't believe that, you don't have to stay there. That's the whole point of what I'm sharing this. You can be in a place of unbelief and this morning go to a place of believing this. And in the moment you believe this, the the scripture says you are instantly made right with God. And again, you know, either you're right with God or you're not. There's no in-between. There's no other choice. Even though you and I were not there to witness the event of the resurrection, we can simply by faith, by believing that this happened and it happened for our benefit. You may remember following the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples at various times. Thomas, one of those disciples that had not yet seen Jesus resurrected, had heard about it from the other disciples, but he said, you know what? Uh, Until I can actually see the nail prints and I can put my finger on there and I can touch the the side where the spear was thrust through him, he said, I will not believe. And when Jesus finally revealed himself to Thomas, proving he had risen from the dead, Jesus told Thomas there in John 20, 29, he says, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed, blessed are those who believe without seeing me. There is a blessing for those who believe Jesus rose from the dead without having to see any evidence of that. When you believe in your heart, Paul says, that God raised Christ from the dead, the result is you are made right with God. That is the first thing that happens. Second thing that happens there in Romans 10, Paul says it's by confessing with your mouth, with your words that Jesus is Lord. And he says, when, when you do that sincerely, I mean, sincerely, you make that declaration, that proclamation with your mouth, with your words, Jesus is Lord. The result of that is salvation. And part of the benefit of salvation is eternal life. And again, going back to John, uh, 1 John 5, You can know right now whether you have eternal life based upon your belief and response concerning God's son. Listen to Romans 8, beginning there with verse 15. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now, as a result of that, we can call him Abba Father. In English, that's where we get our word daddy. Abba, daddy, daddy God. For his spirit, now get this. I want you to pay attention to this. For his spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, joins with our spirit. His spirit joins with our spirit. His spirit connects with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, were his heirs. Part of that inheritance when we become a child of God is eternal life. And right now, again, every one of you in this room, your spirit is affirming one of two truths. 
your spirit is affirming that you are a child of God and, and that, is, that is coming from God's affirmation that yes, you are my son. Yes, you are my daughter. His spirit is testifying. His spirit is connecting. His spirit is confirming. Yes, you are my son or daughter. Or the Holy Spirit right now is testifying to you, you are not my son. You are not my daughter. One of two things is happening in this room for every one of you here this morning. If you are, if that confirmation, that connection between his spirit, your spirit says you are a child of God, praise God. If you're not, simply go back, refer back to Romans 10 and confess and believe. That is what every one of us in this room who are children of God have had to do. We confess and we believe. We confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord. We've believed in our hearts God raised him from the dead and because of that we're saved. And because we believed in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we were made right with God. And because we made that profession with our mouth Jesus is Lord, it resulted in our salvation. Every one of us that are born again went through that experience. That's how you become a child of God. And the invitation is open to everyone this morning. I do not believe in, in emotional manipulation. I'm not gonna stand up here and, and emotionally manipulate any of you. I have given you God's word. I have laid out the plan of salvation this morning. It's on you now to decide what to do with that message. Because eternity is at stake this morning. And for those of you that continue to refuse this message, I'm gonna give you a little glimpse into what hell's gonna be like. Part of what you're gonna experience in hell is you're gonna relive this moment over and over and over and over and over and over eternally. Why didn't I say Yes, why didn't I believe? Why didn't I just confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord? I knew it was right, but pride kept me from doing it. I knew it was the truth, but, but my sin was, was too important to me. And you'll spend eternity regretting this moment and every moment you've had along the way to make that decision for Christ. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, but I'm also, I'm not gonna put you on an emotional guilt trip here this morning. I'm giving you the truth. And it is that truth that has the power to set you free this morning. And part of that freedom is eternal life. Part of that joy is eternal life. Let me just close. I wanna just draw your attention to the varied responses to Paul's message because th these same groups of people are in every message of salvation. Verse 32 through 34, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked in contempt. There may be some of you here this morning, you're just inwardly, you're mocking me. You're not mocking me, you're mocking God, you're mocking his word. There were people then, and there are always gonna be people in every message of salvation who are gonna respond with mock and contempt. But others said, we wanna hear more about this later. Today is the day of salvation. There may not come a later. Today is the day to make that decision. 
That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So again, there were mockers. There were people in the middle who needed more time, more information, and there were movers. Those who were moved to respond by faith to the Easter message, and they became believers. We know there must have been at least four saved, all right? We know Dionysus and Demarius believed. And so there were others with them. Others means more than two. So we know at least four people were saved out of that message. You say, well, that wasn't very many. No, there were some. I think one of the mistakes we make is that we think whenever and wherever the gospel is preached, that if everybody or the vast majority of people don't respond favorably, that somehow we failed. That's just simply not true. Billy Graham, one of this generation's greatest evangelists, said this one time. He said, it takes an average of eight times for a person to hear the gospel message before they understand enough to make a decision for Christ. I think that's true. I know that was true for me. It was probably more than eight times. I'm a slow learner. But I eventually got it. Every time you and I share the gospel message with other unbelievers, you know what? We're adding to that number. And there are times where you may be the latest in a line of people sharing that message and other times where where you're number eight or you're you're the final message before they get it, before it really clicks, before they understand enough to make a profession of faith. All that matters is that the gospel message is preached. And it's never up to you and it's never up to me how people respond to the gospel message. We just need to be faithful in preaching the gospel message, preaching Jesus and his resurrection to a lost, broken, blind people. And if it's just one, if there's just one of you this morning that came in here unbelieving and, and just one of you this morning saw the gospel message being preached, heard the invitation to believe and to confess, if it was just one person in this room this morning, I want you to see how heaven responds. Luke 15.10, Jesus said, in the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God. If it's just one person, all of heaven explodes in excitement. May that be our response, our desire, our goal when lost people hear and respond to the Easter message. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you so much for the message of Easter. We thank you so much for the message of salvation. Thank you, Father. You've made it so simple. You've made it easy to understand. This isn't difficult. It's not rocket science. But yet, God, it is. It's a game changer. It's the most important message we'll hear. It is the most important message we'll respond to. And Father, your word says that it is the enemy 
that blinds the heart of people. And we thank you this morning that the power of the resurrection is much greater than any power of the enemy. And Father, this morning I just ask in Jesus' name, if there are people here this morning, Father, that have been blinded, that have been deceived, that have been prevented from seeing, from hearing, from responding to the simple gospel message. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would cause those, those scales, those things that are blinding and deceiving them, Father. I ask, Lord, that in the name of Jesus right now, you would just allow those to fall, to crumble, to no longer be effective. And in their place, Father, that you would quicken within them the belief and the faith that you raised your son Jesus from the dead and that God, it would move them in such a way that they would declare with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Lord of life, Lord of death, Lord of everything. And Father, this morning again, we thank you for the Easter message. We thank you for this Easter day. We thank you that you have made us Easter people. And may we be like Paul, Father. May we just go into a very lost, a broken, a hurting, a deceived world. And like Paul, may we simply preach Jesus and his resurrection. We again thank you for all that you've done for us, for all that you're doing and all that's yet to be done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your son, our savior. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.